Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the show that brings you the five most compelling or important or just mind-expanding news stories in science. I'm Rowan Hooper, podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan, New Scientist Features Editor. Welcome to the show. This week, we're also joined by New Scientist Features Editor, Anna Deming. Hi, Anna. Hi. Coming up on the show today, we have news of time flowing backwards. (laughs) It just sounds funny now. News of yeah, it's just news of time flowing backwards. Uh, uh, we report also report on the detection of organic molecules in the far reaches of the galaxy, seventy thousand light years away, and we have an amazing story about the resurrection of an animal entombed in permafrost for twenty four thousand years. That's even longer than Captain America. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> And we also have a big breakthrough in connectome mapping. So that's the mapping of all the connections between neurons in the human brain. But before we get into it, this is your reminder that as a valued listener to our podcast, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com slash pod 20. Yeah, get all the benefits of a subscription. And that now includes audio versions of the print stories of the magazine. So you could listen to the podcast and then go and listen to the magazine. Go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe. So we're going to start today with the news that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved a new drug to treat Alzheimer's disease for the first time in 18 years. This is a pretty big deal and understandably has made a big splash. And that's no wonder because there are more than 30 million people worldwide living with Alzheimer's disease. And we've made such so slow progress in finding ways to treat it and really in understanding it. And that's what's notable here because this new drug, which is called adu sorry, let's have another run at this, <laughs> aducanumab, targets the amyloid plaques that are thought to cause Alzheimer's rather than just treating the symptoms, the cognitive decline symptoms. And until now, all of our interventions have really been targeting the symptoms. Yeah, and that's one reason why this new drug is really controversial. So the leading hypothesis for the cause of Alzheimer's is the buildup of these plaques made by amyloid proteins, but also by another protein that's found in the brain called tau. And the plaques are, are the hallmark of Alzheimer's. But, you, you know, you only find them in autopsies of people who've died of the disease. 
And it's not certain by any means that they are the cause of the disease. Exactly. So it very well may be that there's some other underlying cause and the buildup of amyloid plaques is a byproduct of that process. And we just don't know yet. In fact, we broke a story a few years ago that implicated um, the bacteria that cause gum disease as a possible cause of Alzheimer's disease. So really, we just don't know. It's, it's, It's up for grabs what the real underlying cause is. Yeah. And so a big worry is that drug companies now will see that this new drug has been approved and they'll get their own amyloid busting drugs out. There are already some in the in the works from other companies like Eli Lilly and Roach. So that might mean we get distracted away from really understanding what's causing the disease. And another issue here, another concern with this new drug is the actual evidence that it really works. So aducanumab, got it first time that time, (laughs) is made by Biogen. And initially in the first analysis of the results of phase three trials, which are sort of after safety has been proven and you start to bring it out to a bigger number of patients. So that was on 3000 patients. They couldn't find evidence that it worked better than placebo at slowing the rate of cognitive decline. And then they went back and analyzed more data and concluded that at At high doses, the drug does work. And so the FDA then approved it as a drug for Alzheimer's using its accelerated approval program, which means that Biogen has to continue running trials after the drug's already out there to prove that it can actually improve cognition. So right now it's been approved on the basis that it reduces amyloid and not really that it's yet demonstrated to improve cognition. Yeah, so exactly. They've not shown clinically that it works. So, you know, We've got less than rock solid evidence that this drug works. And we've got a target of amyloid plaques that's not even established as the cause of the disease. And by a really weird piece of timing, there's a paper just out in the journal Nature Medicine, which looked at the distribution of tau protein in the brains of people who died from Alzheimer's and found that it fell into four distinct patterns. So there's the implication that there is four different kinds of Alzheimer's, each of which attacks a different part of the brain and causes buildup of tau proteins, not even amyloid. And the timing of the release of this new research just just underlines how we may not be right to just treat amyloid protein buildup. But getting back to aducanumab, the way that the drug actually is wor- works or is meant to work, it's an antibody that you can get in an injection and then the drug targets amyloid plaques and breaks them up. Yeah, and we don't have anything that does that at the moment. So as you've said, all the previous drugs only tackle the symptoms and, you know, you can maybe delay memory loss for a short period of a few months or something. And then there's the very hefty price tag of this drug. So Biogen will charge $50,000 per year per person for the treatment. So you can start to get an idea of the huge amounts of money we're talking about here, given that just in the US, there are 6 million people with Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, so it's billion. It's a billions of dollars. I mean, if it works, it's fantastic. But you know, we've been reporting on this for years. Uh, there's a whiff of desperation all over Alzheimer's research. You know, it's it's not knowing what causes it or how to treat it. And there's been you know decades of research attention going into it, and it's, so it's really frustrating. I do wonder for a moment. I know it's kind of our it's our it's our thing that we bring a healthy dose of skepticism to you know um, overly exuberant claims. But is it possible? Are we maybe being too down on this development? Do you think? 
Well, yeah, well, maybe. I, I spoke to someone at the Alzheimer's Society and they said that the FDA decision, they said it was a promising step. And lots of people have said it's very promising. Um, you know, it shows the biological processes that at least are associated with Alzheimer's can be altered by this therapy. But they also said they expect that other anti-amyloid drugs will, will now get the spotlight. And that, you know, that's what others have said too. And so, yeah, as we said, that might shut down more promising avenues into research. Overall, though, we do tend to see improvements in therapies after a drug gets approved. So that's basically what we hope will happen here. Yeah, that's what we've got to hope will happen. You know, and in the UK, Alzheimer's is the biggest killer now ahead of heart disease and cancer. So, you know, many researchers and charities have welcomed this FDA decision. And another one, Alzheimer's Research UK, they've urged the UK (laughs) to authorise the drug here. But overall, it really has split opinion It's as you said, it's not been shown to be clinically effective. And that's what they have to do now. And and some people do think it's going to be a waste of time and money. So just to emphasize that while this is certainly a a major development in, in our fight against Alzheimer's, it's very far from being a cure. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, where we celebrate some organism that's in the news. Rowan, what is it this week? Uh, I've got an animal I'm very fond of. It's a rotifer, which is a microorganism found all over the place. Lovely little animal. And it has the amazing ability to survive dehydration. Is that what makes you so fond of it? Uh, It is one reason, but also because I did a postdoc studying it at Trinity College Dublin. But the reason to mention it today is that one of these animals has been revived after spending 24,000 years frozen in permafrost. And that's the longest a rotifer has has ever been observed to survive in such extreme conditions. Okay, so you said before that they can survive dehydration. So is this basically an extreme version of that? Yeah, exactly. They're they're famous for that, which is just like tardigrades. They're another favourite organism of mine. So yeah, in the past when I was a working biologist I used to dry <laughs> rotifers out and look at them in in the spore form that they take to see if they, that gives us clues to how they survive in this state. Okay so where is this 24,000 year old rotifer from? Uh, it's from permafrost in Siberia. Uh, I used to get mine from the from the gunk in the gutters of Dublin uh, <laughs> but in this study the biologist drilled into the permafrost and found the rotifer inside and warmed it up and fed it and the thing revived and then it reproduced. Oh wow uh, after all that time. Yeah um, and that's the other amazing thing I forgot to mention about uh, these rotifers and this is a group of them called deloid rotifers and they can clone themselves so this thing thawed itself out and then cloned itself. Okay, wow, definitely a worthy life form of the week then. 24,000 years. Yeah, uh, that is, it is fantastic. It's not quite the record because a nematode worm has, has the record after being revived after 30,000 years. So do we know how they managed to survive for such long periods without water? Uh, we do not. Uh, there are various tricks that different organisms seem to use to survive long periods. Nematodes do one thing and tardigrades do something else. And the trick I was looking at in rotifers was a way of of shrinking themselves down into the spore state. And I was using something called atomic force microscopy to look at how the spore folded up at a nano scale and to see if that gave any clues. Uh, I called it nano folding, but unfortunately I didn't republish anything on that. But if anyone is listening and has an atomic force microscope and wants to look at that, please do and get in touch. 
Time out. We want to tell you about the latest from New Scientist Academy. That's right. Understanding the immune system has never been so important. The latest online course from New Scientist Academy is a primer on the biology of the immune system, how it works, when it changes, and what you can do to keep it healthy. With world-renowned scientists to guide you in a richly immersive, interactive learning environment, you'll enjoy an unforgettable learning experience. From COVID to the common cold, the course will give you the lowdown on how your body works to protect you. To find out more, go to newscientist.com slash courses. Right. Following on from the news about the Alzheimer's drug, we have even more brain news. Rowan spoke earlier with our regular contributor, Mike Marshall, about a brain mapping story he's been working on. Yes, this is from a team, including uh, people from Google Research. They have mapped all the connections in one cubic millimeter of human brain tissue. Now, that might not sound very much, quite a small piece, but as we've often said, the brain is the most complex object in the known universe. So that cubic millimeter has 50,000 brain cells and about 130 million connections between them. Wow. So, yeah, it's an unbelievably dense network. So what have they done? How have they managed to make this this map and it's called the connectome isn't it the map of connections yeah yeah, exactly a connectome uh so three steps the first step was to get a bit of brain tissue and this came from a woman who had very severe epilepsy so she had uh surgery to remove the damaged bit of brain tissue and in order to get that they had to take out some healthy brain tissue that was on top of it so the researchers took this healthy brain tissue and pickled it and uh stained it with metal so that all the bits of the cells would be visible and then they sliced it into lots and lots of incredibly thin slices and then every single slice was imaged under a scanning electron microscope and then the final step was to take all those flat two-dimensional images and assemble them in a computer into a three-dimensional image and I'm making that last bit sound really easy it wasn't (laughs) involved an awful lot of like machine learning tools that, that the people at Google Research basically had to invent and a whole new web browser system called Neuroglancer so that you can actually look at this stuff. So yeah, it was a it was a very long and complicated process. It took them about I think 4 years. Okay. Um and they ended up with a, a cubic millim- a map of a cubic millimeter of brain tissue. So how much data has that taken up? It is an enormous amount of data. <laughs> it's one it's 1.4 petabytes. So that's about 700 times the storage capacity of the average modern computer. right okay so what's the aim what's their aim in doing this the way that they see it is that they this is essentially a bit like the human genome project in that it's a just a huge trove of data that they've made publicly available so other researchers can then study it and try to understand it try and figure out you know how does the brain work what is actually going on at the cellular level how does learning work you know we've often said that learning is connections between neurons and when one neuron fires the other the next one does is that really how it works what is happening at the cellular level within the within this network of of cells the only way you can understand start to understand what's going on is to first of all be able to look at it so i mean this is the latest in a sort of stepwise progression that we've been getting in in connectome science so we had the the nematode worms nervous system was mapped and that was what 300 and something neuron cells in the whole body. And then they did a rough map of the mouse brain. Are they going to, you know, is the aim eventually to try and attempt to make it a connectome map of the entire human brain? 
So I think ultimately that's one thing that they might try to do, but we are quite a long way off from that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the next step up that they have sort of suggested doing, they suggested doing this last year, was to map is to map uh, an entire mouse brain. Now that in itself would need a data set that's um, a thousand times larger than this one, what's called an exabyte, and that would be a big step up in itself, but. Given how rapidly this technology is improving, I wouldn't be surprised if they could pull it off before the end of the decade. Now, an entire human brain would need a data set that's about another thousand times larger again than the mouse brain. So, so we're now a million times larger than the data set that we, we that we were originally talking about. So, this would be a zettabyte. Uh, we're, we're way up into the, the the list of prefixes you can use yeah. to say how big a number is. Uh, a zettabyte would be roughly comparable to the amount of digital content that's generated in a year across the planet. So, <laughs> really, yeah, and you'd have to have it in one place. So um, that would be an enormous data storage tra- t- data just on its charge. own. Uh, just storing it is mind mind boggling, and they'd need to invent entire new systems to store and process it. I suppose. Yeah, lots of new storage systems and also just, you know, ever, ever more impressive machine learning to be able to make sense of it. Because you think, you know, if you're cutting slices, what you do is you cut all the little um, tendrils, the sort of fibers that reach out from the neurons. So you have to use machine learning to essentially put those things back together again in three dimensions. It's incredibly complicated, even just for this one cubic millimeter. If you do it for the brain as a whole, that's orders of magnitude worse. So it's not just storage, it's computation and learning to understand it. Yeah. So the other question um, that crops up here is, is it worth doing it anytime soon? Because if you have a map of the entire human brain, what are you going to learn from that that you can't already learn from these from a, a smaller data set like this one because the trouble is that we don't understand how information is encoded in the brain you know i have all the, these sort of weird little bits of knowledge about you know what songs were like number one at different times in my life and so forth and no plot lines from movies we don't understand how that's stored in the brain at all so what you'd essentially get would be this enormous data set that we can't really make very much sense of we need to ask these sort of fundamental questions about how is information being stored? How is it processed? Perhaps before it's even worth attempting to map a whole human brain. Okay, but we let's let's skip on uh, like decades then, because people <laughs> are talking about this. Even if you know proper scientists dismiss the idea, this is about transhumanism, isn't it? Like a lot of people and people in Silicon Valley who say they want to cheat death, um, you know, they really run with the idea that you can map the entire connectome of your brain and then basically put that map onto a computer um, you know press run and there you go you're suddenly conscious living in the computer uh, what what's your take on that essentially i'm not holding my breath um <laughs> now that's not to say that i think that this whole idea is like completely impossible and will never happen that's always a really foolish thing to say but i'm not, i would be quite surprised if this was possible in my lifetime Partly because, you know, go back to where this this connector map came from. It is from dead brain tissue, right? This was tissue that was cut out and pickled and stained with osmium and then <laughs> cut into pieces. Yeah. You know, it's not an alive piece of brain. So we don't know, you know, 
there are all kinds of like incredibly complicated um, biochemical processes going on inside every single one of these cells. And none of that information is captured here. All this is, is the, is the structure, you know, it's just, it's just the map of where the cells are and which cell links to which, but it's not what's going on inside those cells. So I kind of, you know, without wanting to sort of downplay the significance of what they've achieved here, because it is amazing. It's not a living thing. So you, you can put this data into a computer, but I, you know, it, I don't think it would be even alive, let alone conscious. I think there's still a, I don't think we understand enough about how consciousness and sentience works in the brain to be able to confidently say that we, that we're collecting enough data to actually capture it. Let's let's be satisfied with this one cubic millimeter for now, and and what we can learn with it without like straying into transhumanism. And, and, yeah, and, I think and so. We w- I think we will be scientists will be picking this data set apart for many years to come. You know, it's a it's a big step forward. And now it's time to peer into the total perspective vortex, which is where we find out about something that completely changes our view on well, life, the universe, everything. Yeah. This week, it's news from the American Astronomical Society that organic molecules have been detected near the edge of the galaxy. What? What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, so you you get complex molecules quite a lot in space, it turns out, because, you know, you've got carbon, hydrogen and oxygen just knocking around. And sometimes, you know, it's not hard for them to form up and make things. But the further out you go from the centre of the Milky Way, the less of this stuff you get you know, they're less of these elements that we know are required for life. And it turns out there's this thing called the galactic habitable zone. So is that like the the galactic version of the habitable zone that you get around stars? So, you know, the region where it's not too hot and not too cold for liquid water to form? Yeah, I, I had no idea that there was one like that on, on this scale. So it is like that. It's, some astronomers have suggested there's this Goldilocks zone on this galactic scale. So if you're too close to the galactic centre, you're exposed to loads of supernovas and life can't get going uh, too far out and there aren't enough heavy elements and you can't get terrestrial planets forming. And apparently after about 29,000 light years, you're too far out. So that region is known as the galactic habitable zone. Okay, so now they've found organic molecules at the edge of the galaxy. So that means that this galactic habitable zone is wider than we thought? Yeah, they found methanol and a molecule called cyclopropanolidine in clouds of gas, (laughs) (laughs) in clouds of gas in the spiral arms of the galaxy. So between 42,000 and and more than 76,000 light years from the middle of the galaxy. And of course, when you say found, you don't mean like stumbled on, but you mean detected from afar with a very powerful radio telescope, right? Yeah, yeah. Radio telescope on Kitt Peak in Arizona. So we know lots of organic molecules will form spontaneously. So that's where a lot of research is focused and looking for the origin of life. Biochemists looking to see what you can get just by mixing elements up under the right conditions. Yeah, you can get all sorts. You can get proteins, amino acids, lipids that make cell membranes, and even nucleotides that uh, form RNA and DNA. All of those things can just be created spontaneously. What we don't know, of course, and my daughter keeps asking me this, I can't answer it, is how do they all come together to make life? And this result doesn't tell us anything about that, of course. But it is fascinating that you get organic molecules so far out on the edge of the galaxy. So life could be out there. It could. 
Now, Anna, I was going to say your story is the final one this week, but given it's about time running backwards in some <sighs> ways, maybe I should have introduced this as the first story of the show. Yeah, so I was totally confused everyone at the outset. <laughs> yes, so this week we have a feature all about when time runs backwards, which is more than you'd think, I kid you not. Time feels like it's running backwards for me because we didn't, we do a story recently about this. Yes, we did. But that was about possible evidence of a parallel universe going backwards in time. <laughs> if you... Right, <laughs> silly me. Wrong universe. <laughs> I was in the wrong universe. Yeah. That's it. So if you want to know what all that was about, check your April 2020 news scientist features. But I'm not talking about a parallel universe here. I'm talking about this universe and the humdrum little atoms and molecules in it that the kinds of things you have poodling about in your body, keeping you ticking over. This is about how events unfold with them in backwards order in time and how understanding this might give us insights into some medical conditions and even some of the fundamentals of life. Okay, so so what's actually happening with the arrow of time down at this at this tiny scale? And and wait, and how was that different from our experience of time kind of marching forward? Well, yes, yeah, so... We can tell, we can all tell backwards from forwards time. Say if someone plays a video backwards, there's always some telltale sign like a drink slopping itself back into a tip glass or even just a shake of the head that leaves your hair do meter. So the point is, the the way we live life from day to day, boiling things cool, frozen things melt, things generally get messier and more disorganised unless you work at it. And physicists describe that as entropy increasing. It's a principle enshrined in the second law of thermodynamics, the entropy of an isolated system left to evolve spontaneously. So that's left to its own devices, if you like, cannot decrease. Now, physicists love laws, but this one is particularly sacrosanct. There's a quote attributed to the early 20th century astronomer, physicist and mathematician, Sir Arthur Eddington, that goes... If someone points out to you that your pet theory of the universe is in disagreement with Maxwell's equations, then so much the worse for Maxwell's equations. If it is found to be contradicted by observation, well, these experimentalists do bungle things sometimes. But if your theory is found to be against the second law of thermodynamics, I can give you no hope. There is nothing for it but to collapse in deepest humiliation. (laughs) <laughs> I love your Arthur Eddington uh, are we fa- so does that mean we're facing deep hu- humiliation now because we're are we going against the second law well yes and no so there's nothing violating the second law at the scale of you and me and that kind of thing but what theories and subsequently experiments have shown is there's a bit of wriggle room when you zoom in at teeny tiny scales or Jiggle room, I should probably say, because at that scale, everything's jiggling about and you get stuff fluctuating to and fro and so on. Actually, there's been a bit of an issue about how to reconcile what is going on at tiny molecular scales with what we see at everyday you and me kind of scales. And that dates back to the Industrial Revolution, which was a really exciting time for thermodynamics. Scientists were fleshing out their theories about energy and efficiency while Almost simultaneously, engineers were applying them in these labour-saving devices that were reshaping the world. So we had all this going on. And then we get to Boltzmann formulating this thermodynamics in terms of little atoms and molecules. So that's what they'd call statistical mechanics. And a bit of a debate erupts. So if you think of 
atoms and molecules kind of bouncing around like billiard balls. Those aren't events where you could easily distinguish forwards from backwards time. Two billiard balls crashing into each other and rebounding off. It looks kind of right whether you play that film forwards or backwards. You can't really tell. So that's what physicists would call a reversible process. So the question was, how do you get from all these reversible processes to an egg that goes splat in a really irreversible way? (laughs) Yeah. Go on. Tell us then. (laughs) Ah, Reveal the secret. (laughs) You'll have to (laughs) read But suffice to say, you can get from one to the other. And 150 years on from that debate hitting off, we might be starting to get to grips with it in a way that is providing some unique tools for people trying to figure out how bodies work and even stuff like natural selection and life itself. And there I'm afraid we will have to leave it. Quick reminder that you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com slash pod 20. Thanks, Anna. And thanks to our other guest, Mike Marshall. And thanks to all of you for listening. And just to say that as well as the feature Anna edited about time running backwards, this week's cover story is all about junk food and how we're finally getting to grips with why it's supposed to be so bad for us. And it may not be just because it's so delicious, as in it's laden with salt, sugar and fat. So read that. That's our cover story in this week's magazine. Yep, that's it. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.